Hi, I'm Kirk Flagg. Welcome to the PEO InSync podcast. In each episode, we will take you behind the scenes to explore the ever-changing PEO world. We will talk with the industry legends, the people whose hard work and creativity shape the PEO world of today. Also, we'll interview current industry leaders, those who are using their own creativity to grow and expand what it means to be a PEO. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Good morning, everyone. I expect that this is going to be my last interview for this season and taking a break for the summer. I wanted to have someone really special on today. And I have been fortunate enough to have Mike Miller, currently with Fisher and Phillips. He's been the general counsel of FAPIO in Florida for 37 years. And I wanted him to come on and share some of his wisdom, share some of the history of the whole PEO industry, not just in Florida. So Mike, welcome to the InSync PEO podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great, Kirk. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. Well, Mike, I generally ask how people got into the PEO industry, but but as I said, I want to talk about the history uh, of the industry as well. So let's just start. How did you get involved with the PEO industry? Well, it was, it was a very interesting situation. I had left the law firm I was with and entered the wonderful world of starvation. And <laughs> I had done uh, some work for an attorney who owned a restaurant, and he kind of liked what I had done. And he said, you know, Mike, I've got this client. I don't know. They do something called employee leasing. Right. Um, and they're having a problem. The state of Florida won't recognize them as an employer. Would you mind taking them on as a client? And of course, I had never heard of employee leasing back in 1985. Um, And I said, sure, I can do that. And I met with a a company called Staff Leasing Ah. in Florida. And I said to the four guys, hey, guys, is is there anyone else that does what you do? And they said, yeah, we've got a few other companies. And I said, well, why don't we form an association? And with that association, and my title is general counsel, I'll go up to the Emerald City. I'll go up to Tallahassee, and I will try to convince them that we are an employer for unemployment purposes. We formed that little association. Of course, last year we did $25 billion in payroll here in Florida. So we've, we've grown a little bit more from that, that early day and went up to Tallahassee. And it was quite an experience when I got up there. Well, I thought that uh, they would welcome me with open arms, just the opposite. You're not an employer. What are you doing up here? Uh, you're not the common law employer. How can we recognize you as the employer for unemployment? But we sat, we reasoned, 
Um, and we ultimately came up with a bill that recognized us as the employer for unemployment purposes. The bill got filed with the legislature and kind of sat there. It moved slowly. And then through an incredible piece of good luck, we got a call from a particular lobbyist who said, your bill is further along than other bills in the unemployment um, chain. And U.S. Sugar, Publix, and Disney have bills that they would like to attach to your bill. Ah. Your bill will become the engine. And you'll, like, we're going to pull Disney, U.S. Sugar, Publix. But your bill is going to pull those bills through the legislature. Um, we didn't pull anything. They pushed and the bill got through the legislature. And without that fluke, I'm not sure where we would be today. But again, sometimes hard work pays off, even though you get a little bit of luck that, that assists you. And boy, that was sure luck to have those three corporate behemoths helping us in the unemployment arena. So after that, what, ha what was happening in the PEO industry back in the, the late 80s, I guess. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I gave a speech a while back and not to get biblical in nature, but I kind of quoted from Genesis. And I said, basically, in the beginning, the PEO industry was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the industry. That was kind of it. I mean, people were going in all sorts of different directions. They didn't want regulation. They didn't want guidance. They wanted to shoot from the hip. Um, and yet there were others that said, no, we're a real industry. We need to have legislation. We need to have regulation. And those were the folks that actually won out. And in, in Florida, as I said, we passed the unemployment bill. We then passed a workers' comp exclusivity of remedy bill. And then we went on to pass licensure. And licensure was certainly the most significant bill that has been passed in the PEO industry. So how, how did you how did it go from you know unemployment being the only issue to full licensure? 1990, um, there were a number of folks in the industry that came to me and said, we need regulation. We need to be viewed as a real employer. And unless we get the stamp of state approval, we are never going to go anywhere. And the industry asked me if I would draft a licensure bill. And I said, sure, I'll do it. But I put together um, a licensing bill that's pretty much stood the, the test of time. Um, we set up a, a board of employee leasing companies that basically would be from the industry. So it, that was unique right from the get-go, that there would be five members from the industry and two members representing the general public. And that seven member board would have the opportunity to license and discipline PEOs. And the legislature agreed with that approach, has passed the legislation. And I'm sure our listeners would love to get into the details of lobbying and legal analysis here, but I want to go broader with you, Mike. 37 years, what 
what are the big changes? What, what was it like in the early days? Well, it, it really was a, a situation where we basically had no shape. We had no form. Um, in the early days, there were PEOs in Florida. They're still called employee leasing companies. But there were PEOs that um, basically existed to sell low-cost workers' comp, existed off of an unemployment arbitrage, and that has just dramatically changed. Today, we truly are a professional employer organization. We're providing HR guidance and 401k plans and health insurance. We, we, we um, have evolved so significantly from those early days that I sit back and I'm, I'm truly amazed at the the men and women that have brought us to this point. It's, it is an amazing transformation that has taken place. But I also recognize that there's a huge need. Florida has been a prime example, but California does not have any true regulations or reg even recognition of the PEO industry out here. So maybe you and your, your friends can come out here and draft something for us out here. Well, again, nothing can stop all fraud, but licensing goes a long way towards doing that and having regulators watch over the industry and make sure that fraud does not exist. I wanted to talk more about what were some of the big changes that you saw, let's, let's say in the 2000. Well, just that, I mean, basically for the PEO industry, and obviously I'm somewhat biased, but as goes Florida, so goes the nation. So typically a lot of things start here. The mergers and acquisitions started down here. Companies were starting to go public. And again, it could not have happened without regulation that the industry became a real industry. And because it was a real industry, you found private equity um, companies and other um, significant uh, entities and individuals who wanted to be a part of the industry because it had become real. And again, in, in the early days, um, it was anything goes, whereas by the turn of the century, there was a realization that was hitting that if you want to someday be able to sell your company, well, an anything goes approach isn't going to work. It has to be a real company offering real services and real benefits. Right. What's your version of how the PEO industry was founded or was created? Certainly, there are many folks that would say it began with an attempt to have doctors and other professionals um, be able to uh, have their employees move to another entity, a PEO, and then they were the only one left and they could have a, a rather large 
401k plan or something of the sort. Right. I'm not sure that that ever was the case in Florida. I do think it might have been the case in California, but I'm not positive even about that. But in Florida, it really did evolve out of temporary help. There were a number of folks that were in the temporary business that had read articles about PEOs. And T. Joe Willie from California had written extensively about PEOs. And it just, um, it caught on. It made sense that we could not um, take all of a doctor's employees and, and, and now the doctor has no employees. No, this, this concept of co-employment, even though the term co-employment didn't exist for years, um, this was just a phenomenal idea where a PEO could do what it does best, but allow the client to do what it does best, i.e. run its own business. Well, I feel very vindicated because the story that I heard was that the PEO industry started in California with exactly as you said, as a method for doctors to lease their employees so they could maximize their their retirement savings. If Mike Miller says that that's you know where he thinks it comes from, I now believe that that's the absolute truth. <laughs> but let's talk about Florida as the center of the PEO world. A large portion of all PEOs are either based in Florida or are just exclusively in Florida. Why, why Florida? Well, we got the earliest start. I mean, and again, our unemployment bill passed in 1985. Then we passed a couple of years later, the workers' comp exclusivity of remedies so that uh, an employee can't collect workers' comp and then turn around and sue the client. Then we did licensure. Then we passed tort reform that basically said, even if you're a joint employer, the PEO is still not going to be liable because um, it didn't have control. So if you have the magic language in your service agreement, the client shall have sole and exclusive control at the worksite, at which or from which the employees perform their services. Even if you are a joint employer, you're still not liable if you have that language and you went, weren't aware of the um, inappropriate action that took place. And if you're just a traditional co-employer, not rising to the level of being a joint employer, we have um, case law in Florida that basically says absent control, there's no vicarious liability. And PEOs do not exercise control. One of the one of the more significant provisions that I drafted into the licensing law was Section 468.534. And that's been adopted by the vast majority of the states around the country that basically says if you're licensed, certified, or registered pursuant to law, then you, um, you're the employer of the employees for those purposes but the PEO is the employer for unemployment and workers' comp. So we've been able to utilize that language when we've had litigation involving doctors, dentists, uh, law firms recently. Uh, I had a case involving a law firm. Um, construction companies, 
All of these entities are licensed, certified, or registered pursuant to law. And as such, if the client engages in inappropriate conduct, that's not a sin that's passed on to the PEO. So 468.534 was indeed, I think, the most significant portion of the licensing law that I happened to draft. Mike, I, there's a couple of uh, directions I would like to go here, but let's start with Mike's wisdom for the PEO. And, and again, I would like to focus on you know a, a two or three things that you would advise a startup PEO in Florida or anywhere in the United States. What are the things that they need to know? Well, first of all, they have to be able to find workers' comp. And in hard markets, that's not the easiest thing in the world to do. And closely tied to um, the ability to find workers' comp is they have to be financially well-heeled. They, in the old days, as you know, Kirk, you could, you could get started basically with almost... Um, no financial reserves whatsoever. That's not true today. Um, you, you need to be a viable company, financially solid. Um, and while Florida still goes by, you have to have 50,000 in tangible accounting net worth in order to get licensed. That's not changed since 1991. Uh, you, you need significantly more than 50,000 in tangible accounting net worth to operate a PEO significant, uh, successfully today. So again, you also have to have people that have knowledge. You have to, we're offering services. We are a professional employer organization. So we're, we're offering HR guidance. We, we are, um, providing benefits. We have to have expertise with regard to benefits. So it's no longer a situation where you borrow $50,000 and you set up a PEO. You have to have the expertise to do this. Right, right. And I know a lot of VC money is coming into the industry these days. or Tremendously so. Tremendously so. Mike, I, I'm not in Florida and I'm not really that familiar with the market. I've interviewed a couple of owners. I've been trying to have guests on or people on that are doing something new and different. I had Nick Soman of a decent PEO and his mission statement is to uh, provide affordable health care to the public. What PEOs are doing something that you think is a really creative idea, maybe a little twist on a traditional PEO model there in Florida? Well, one thing that we're starting to see for the first time is setting up commonly owned internal PEOs. The Department of Revenue has, at least in Florida and, and also in other states, has said some of the um, ways that large commonly owned companies are doing business where they set up one entity that's going to pay the employees and 
They try to say maybe it's a common paymaster or we're doing employee leasing or we're doing something else other than PEOs. Well, the Department of Revenue has now come to us uh, at Fisherman Phillips and said, what we'd like to see is these entities actually set up PEOs. And we're starting to license commonly owned entities, whether we're talking about car dealerships, um, whether we're talking about restaurant chains. For the first time, we're starting to see this happen, not just here in Florida, but elsewhere as well. Interesting. So I think you, you were correct that there is this allure that, boy, let's go to California, high workers' comp rates, and, but boy, litigation and the argument that we're joint employers. I've had pretty good success through the years. A lot of folks have seen the, the letter that Mike Miller does with 100 exhibits explaining why we're not a joint employer. And it has worked somewhat in California, but boy, the propensity to litigate in California. Um, again, I would love to see some regulations out there that clarifies just what a PEO is and what it is not to try to lessen some of the litigation that is occurring out there. My last question actually is, uh, what other challenges are you seeing? To me, one of the, the, the biggest challenges may, and I'll emphasize the word may, may be the, um, the view of joint employment that could be taken at the Department of Labor, the National Labor Relations Board, where a very expansive view of joint employment, where words in a service agreement could theoretically be enough, where you retain a right of direction and control or reserve the right to hire and fire. Um, under President Trump and previous administrations, although President Obama also took a broader view, um, as I said in, in my standard letter, I have 100 cases now that talk about why a PEO should not have joint employment liability. But if we're going to have this broader view of joint employment, it could become more of a challenge to convince administrative agencies, to convince plaintiff's attorneys that PEOs are not a joint employment. So service agreement language is crucial. We have just rewritten our rules in the state of Florida as to what does it mean to reserve a right of direction and control and retain authority to hire and fire. The, the rules have been rewritten by our board of employee leasing companies to clarify that a PEO doesn't have to actually exercise this, that allocation back to the client can occur. And PEOs all across the nation are going to have to recognize the fact that we're only midway through the Biden uh, first term. Um, second term, obviously, is up to the electorate. And it, it is not going to be your grandmother or grandfather's PEO industry anymore if a broader approach to joint employment is going to be taken. That language is in there for a reason. I put that language in the first licensing law, not to make us 
um, the employer and tell a doctor, well, I want you to make that incision uh, four inches long rather than two inches long. And I want you to go in through the abdomen versus the, no, we, we're not telling folks how to run their business. I put that language in there to give us the ability to be an employer um, for purposes of providing benefits, workers' comp, health insurance, 401k, but in no way did I insert that language so that we could tell anyone how to run their business. Do you have any parting words of wisdom for someone wanting to get into the PEO industry? Uh, the, the, the word is welcome. We welcome you into this industry, whether you're going to be practicing as an attorney, starting a PEO. I mean, I've been doing it for 37 years, practicing law for 50 years. Um, it's just so exciting when I can mentor young people who are entering this industry. It's, it's, it is my greatest joy to be able to do that. And yes, we welcome folks into the industry. Okay, Mike, I lied. I have one more question for you. What does your future look like? Where do you think you're going to be in the next couple of years? Well, as some people know, I'm on the board of directors of a worldwide pediatric cancer organization. So I have, uh, and, and Fisher and Phillips has been so spectacular in allowing me to do this, but we are funding some of the most significant research in cancer. We're, we're funding a program out your way at Stanford in a particularly deadly type of pediatric cancer called DIPG where um, we just had the results published in, um, and, and discussed in USA Today about two weeks ago, where a child was able to come in in a wheelchair and walk out of the doctor's office after the treatment. We're funding something here at the University of Florida, which is uh, it's science fiction-like, where um, we are uh, using nanoparticles and placing little tiny bits of the pediatric tumor into the nanoparticles, putting the nanoparticles back into the child's body, and then having the body recognize that as a foreign object and have the immune system attack the cancer by way of recognizing it as a foreign uh, object. So I'm gonna be doing more and more pediatric cancer work, but, I just told the industry uh, on the 5th of April that I'm not retiring this year. I will be continuing. I had told them I was going to retire, but I was asked if I would continue both by Fisher and Phillips and by FAPIO. And on the 5th of April, I told them I will be continuing. So I, my two great loves are PEOs and finding cures if we can for pediatric cancer. And I'm gonna be doing both of those in the future. Well, that is great news, Mike, because I'd heard the first rumor about April 5th. I didn't hear your announcement that you were continuing on. So that makes me very happy. And uh, I think it makes the industry very happy. So thank you for appearing today. I think we have some several nuggets of wisdom that we can pass on to people. 
And again, as I said at the beginning, I was welcomed in this industry, much as you're, you're saying you're welcoming people even today. It's a great industry to be in. There's some great people. And Mike Miller, I appreciate all that you've done for the industry, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners do as well. Well, thank you so much, Kirk. I greatly appreciate that. Thank you, and hopefully we'll talk again soon. Would love to. Thank you. Bye.